Shang Liang, was the lead developer on the original Java Virtual Machine. Today, Shang works as the CEO of Rancher Labs, a company building a platform on top of Kubernetes. Shang joins the show to discuss his experiences in the technology industry. The container orchestration wars had many victims. The competing standards for how an enterprise should manage its numerous containers caused several companies to go down a path where they were building infrastructure which eventually had to be replaced. As Shang discusses in today's episode, the container orchestration wars almost killed his company. Rancher was originally built on top of a different container orchestrator, and the migration to Kubernetes required a massive rewrite of the Rancher platform. The container orchestration wars were not the first technology battle that Shang has seen in his career, and it will not be his last. In today's show, we discuss the nature of technology wars. Are they necessary? How can a software company minimize the damage caused by a war between competing standards? Shang was an excellent guest, and we didn't cover nearly as many subjects as I wanted to, so we'll have to do another show in the future at some point. A few quick announcements. We have a new app for Software Daily on iOS. We will have Android soon. This app contains all 1,000 of our old episodes. If you're looking for a specific topic like cryptocurrencies or Kubernetes or business and philosophy, you can find all of the episodes related to that topic in the Software Daily app. You can comment on these episodes, you can download them, bookmark them. It's a dedicated platform for Software Daily. And you can become a paid subscriber to listen to episodes ad-free by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. Also, I'll be attending some conferences in the near future. Datadog Dash in New York City, July 16th and 17th, and the Open Core Summit, September 19th and 20th in San Francisco. I'd love to see you at either of those conferences. I'll actually be emceeing the Open Core Summit, so I hope to see you there. Zhang Liang, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You were the lead developer on the original Java Virtual Machine, is that correct? Yeah, that was quite a while ago, but it was really my first job out of school. Tell me about building the JVM. Yeah, I mean, it was really exciting. It, it was my first entry into the computing industry, and I could not have uh, expected a better job than that. It was also in the heydays of, uh, of Internet, and Java really found its product market fit you know, empowering the uh, the backbone, the, the, the application layer of the internet. It was a perfect timing for not just the industry, the internet was taking off, but, you know, there was also a Y2K scare at the time. So a lot of the applications were getting rewritten, not unlike how people, you know, re retool for the cloud or, or cloud native for the container today. So, so back then, that basically meant you re-architect and re-implement and rewrite your application using Java. So it's a, it was a really exciting time, and we did a lot, and we learned a lot. Can I just ask, how was your first job writing the JVM? It's a pretty important piece of infrastructure. Why did they put, like, a new grad on that? Yeah, I mean, it was, I did research in the university, building program language compilers, so back, I mean, it was it was fairly specialized, the virtual machine and garbage collection and stuff like that. And it was, I graduated in 96, and they already had a version of Java running, but it wasn't quite, so I didn't have to start from scratch, And it, but it wasn't quite industry grade. It, you know, I remember I was able to crash it uh, very easily just using a, a simple program I write, and it runs for a few minutes and it crashes. And, and that's basically where we were. And it also ran very slowly back then because it only had an interpreter. And we really had to put in all the uh, just-in-time compilers and code generators and, and, and made it efficient. And of course, I wasn't you know, I was one of the early members, but obviously wasn't really the sole member. And they were quite a few guys more senior than me. And uh, they were also then later on, the team really blew up. And, it, you know, there were literally dozens of people working on it. 
What were some of the early mistakes that you made when architecting the JVM? I mean, I think, I mean, in retrospect, it was a pretty successful effort. And it's, it's difficult. You know, when I started working on that, they, I think they were at version 0, no, 1.02. So it was just, just after they kind of shipped the first what we deemed as the production-worthy release. And I think I ended up, you know, shipping 1.1, 1.2. I mean, think about it. I think JVM is, at, is probably at version 8 or 9 now. So it's, it's, it was, that was really more than 20 years ago. The issue back then was I, I thought we were uh, honestly being too conservative in retrospect. You know, probably didn't quite even comprehend the amount of... Uh, adoption it was going to get i mean i think we had the ideas that you know it was it was it could potentially be i think maybe the leaders some microsystems at that time envisioned it but we had a, a very specific ideas about you know how we're going to implement this underlying technology so we had to do a lot of trade-offs and i think it kind of led to in the end we couldn't really get one piece of technology like jvm technology that met uh, diversing needs so, so so then the different profiles and different editions started to appear and then for a while you know java was sort of accused of uh, leading to fragmentation. They were, you know, they were different implementations of it. And as an industry, we all learned a lot over time. I mean, you know, back then we actually thought it would have been possible to enforce compatibility, you know, with 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 just tests because that's how people used to do it, right? With with protocols and with with storage systems, with networking systems. But it turned out with for language and a platform, it was just a, it was just uh, way too difficult. And these days, I think people are more pragmatic, you know, when it comes to things like compatibility. And and generally, it's uh, these days is accepted. It's it's you you, you kind of almost have to stick to a common implementation to be compatible. So another thing, I think. Java was also essentially open source, but I think we, uh, even when I started working on it, the, the Java source code was actually publicly available, but I don't think it actually had an open source license. So like you had to fax something to Sun and they would then they would basically send you uh, some kind of a packaged source code, like a zip file or something. And then, uh, you know, but you, you don't really get to see what's kind of going on every day. And if you obviously want to use it for commercial purposes, then you have to, you know, still go talk to Sun and get a license. So it's a very, very restricted form of open source. And over time, the Java community really started to open up. And, and, and these days, practically all of Java is open source. So, I mean, I think in retrospect, I think Java might have been even more successful had it gone to open source standard implementation, that approach faster, because, uh, you know, for a while, they were uh, different implementations, uh, proprietary implementations of Java. And in retrospect, uh, I think today that seemed like a not a great business opportunity compared with uh, all the other stuff you can build on top of Java, right? So I think those are probably at least some of my learnings out of that experience. You've been through several acquisitions in your business life. You've seen several phases of the software industry. One of those phases was when you were an entrepreneur during the OpenStack days. And I often hear comparisons between the OpenStack ecosystem and the Kubernetes ecosystem. How would you compare those two ecosystems? Yeah, that's a great question. I I, I do hear about it a lot, especially a few years ago. I don't think I hear about it as much anymore because I think I think it turned out both of these ecosystems played out in quite different ways. You know, when Kubernetes was just getting started, there was more of a, a direct analogy. I did hear about it. And I always thought it was a very, very, it, it was not really the right analogy. You know, even though at a very high level, at a sort of a superficial level, there are some similarities but the fundamental you know fundamentally what the software does and uh, the maturity of the software 
the applicability of the software and the way the community was operated, they were just entirely different. So, so actually, any kind of similarity or analogy is actually quite superficial. One thing that always impressed me with Kubernetes is, as much as I liked, I loved uh, working with you know OpenStack and those type of technologies before. It just didn't come close to the level of adoption and maturity as Kubernetes. You know, like like so. The I saw a lot of people in the early days uh, struggled really with the installation and operations of OpenStack, and it was these things were a lot less of a problem with Kubernetes. It just the industry and the 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 community has has matured to such a degree that the the users and the vendors were we felt a lot more welcome as we. Adopted Kubernetes technology, so 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 the, it was actually a very very different experience. Rancher Labs is the company that you started. You started in 2014. What was your original vision for the company? That's a great question too. So, as you pointed out, I mean, we had a quite a bit of a experience. The founding team of Rancher Lab, myself and Shannon Williams and Will Chan and and Darren Shepard. We all had experience working together initially at cloud.com that developed CloudStack and we you know, work with OpenStack and we got acquired into Citrix and sold a software, open source software platform that, that, that helped a lot of people build uh, public clouds and private clouds that sort of you know, looked and operated like Amazon EC2. So, so we did that for many years. And what we learned out of that was, uh, was that approach had limitations because these infrastructure clouds that were getting built weren't really a commodity. They weren't really interchangeable. Like every OpenStack cloud, even if they all based on OpenStack technology or or CloudStack technology, that was what we were mainly working on. They were still different because there's no you know de facto standardization. I mean, to, to some degree, the de facto standardization in cloud is AWS, but now you can only get that from Amazon, right? Even though you know Amazon, uh, Google, Azure, they can all run you know, Intel-based virtual machine images, but the image format is different, the API is different, all the services around it is different. So uh, cloud infrastructure became contrary to our uh, desire, and I think most of customers' desire. Cloud infrastructure became probably the the least commoditized and uh, (laughs) most differentiated type of infrastructure. That was very unexpected for us because, as you probably know, that the, the term rancher came from uh, the saying pets versus cattle. You know, that we always believed in the cloud, cloud world, in the cloud native world, infrastructure should be treated like a resource, which means they should be largely interchangeable. They should be largely a commodity. And in, in fact, in some sense, the cloud infrastructure became less of a commodity than before. Like in the old days, I could take, I could buy a Dell server, or I could buy an HP server, or I could buy a IBM server. And, and these things might be priced a little differently. They might have their own, you know, distinct features, but none of these would really impacted the customer's ability to to interchange them and essentially uh, treat them as commodity. And these vendors really had to essentially, to a large degree, differentiate on price and services. So, uh, uh, and since that's not really the case with uh, with cloud infrastructure, which kind of almost goes against, you know, so, so it's almost like, almost like, you know, you pay what you use or you treat your computing resource as air or water, that's that's <laughs> like a resource. Except there's only one place you can get it. So, so it was just it was never really ideal from our perspective. That's what really got us into containers and Kubernetes. Because finally, with Docker and Kubernetes, there's a software 
packaging technology as well as infrastructure deployment and infrastructure abstraction technology. There's an infrastructure platform technology that you can count on that works everywhere. So like today, you can get uh, Kubernetes clusters from Google. You can get it from uh, Amazon. You can get it from Azure. You can you can you know run it on vSphere. You can run it on bare metal. And there are just so many ways to run it. We obviously build a great business just helping people doing that. But the benefit is now finally the infrastructure is entirely consistent, and it's consistent in ways that's very fundamental. It was not like you know, the Java type of fragmentation back then, which we, you know, mistakenly uh, relied on some kind of a compatibility test suite. Whereas, you know, Kubernetes these days, you always hear people say, I use upstream Kubernetes. Like you're not, you not only have to use Kubernetes, but you have to be really honest in the sense you can't fork, you can't, you know, maybe you can apply a bug fix here and there as long as it absolutely doesn't change any behavior. But, but really it has to be upstream Kubernetes, right? It just made it so consistent. So, so this is really fantastic. I mean, you, you, we, we feel like finally, the vision of you know uh, cloud infrastructure, the vision of pets versus cattle that finally could be fully realized, and and that's why we started this company called Rancher. So enterprise IT can really start to treat all their infrastructure as uh, commodity resources, and they can focus on you know developing applications and deploying these applications in whatever environments they want. So, so anyway, so that's, that is really the, the story and the motivation of starting this company. And we are so lucky that the Kubernetes uh, technology and ecosystem uh, grew almost exactly, perhaps even better than we had hoped, and we really benefited. In 2014, when you started the company, that was before Kubernetes became popular. Everybody knew that we wanted a better abstraction to manage these resources, doc, whether it's Docker containers or VMs or whatever the abstraction of choice for our servers would be, we all knew that we needed to give it to enterprises and we weren't quite sure how that would look. And the way that this played out in the industry was, from my point of view, the container orchestration wars, where you had different container orchestration systems saying, this is the way that we should be managing all of our containers, or all of our, yeah, all of our containers, basically, or in the case of Mesos, your containers and your VMs. And and there were conflicting views on what the API surface should look like, what the community should look like, what the vision should look like. And that's why we had these different container orchestrators my perspective of Rancher is you were not totally agnostic of the container orchestrator, but the you had a vision for the for the UI layer and the user experience and the enterprise experience. And so the container orchestration wars for you were problematic, but not the end of the world. And you probably knew throughout that process that you would either need to eventually support one specific orchestrator or you need to you know support multiple ones but you would make it through the orchestration wars okay you were not in in the position that you know some of the companies that have really bet big on their own container orchestrator were in can, can you tell me your experience of the container orchestration wars yeah it's i mean it, it's so amazing it hasn't really been that long but it almost feel like ancient history now because Kubernetes has become so dominant. Actually, when we got started, Kubernetes was already launched. I mean, it wasn't by no means ready, but it was clearly uh, going to be, we knew it was clearly going to be something that's uh, that's quite special. You know, as primitive a form as it was able why, to Why was that? Why did it look special, even in its primitive form? Yeah, you could tell from just the general competence of the of the work and of the people behind it. I'm not, you know, I'm not just saying that obviously the fact is Google, I mean, I, I think that helps, but it's actually a little more than that. There is a genuine uh, level of, uh, of competence that just, 
<laughs> that just comes through. I mean, there's there are problems too, right? But I think it was it was pretty clear that it was going to be uh, something that's very significant, even though it wasn't quite there yet. And by the way, like you, I mean, it was very kind of you to say that we we didn't get killed by the by the orchestrator war. But I tell you, it was a huge struggle for us in, sure. in many I'm ways, sure. and it almost killed the company. You know, not maybe not in ways you you think. So there were number of problems. One problem was a、uh, because people didn't know what technology was going to wing out. Then.、Uh, A lot of customers were just not moving forward, right? It kind of paused the market, so so that was very bad. And there was also another problem: was really none of these technologies actually worked well. Like the the technology that really worked the best at the time was Apache Mesos, but that was actually Mesos and Marathon, but that was actually kind of also happened to be the least complete. <laughs> it worked. To the degree it worked, so in like in order to make it work, we actually kind of have to do a lot of work on top. Then we didn't think it might have. I mean, we actually thought that Apache Mesos, for a variety of reasons, probably not going to be the winner for for this war. So it's like if we spent a whole lot of money,、uh, effort on it, it, it just didn't seem like the right thing to do. So that was a huge challenge. And you know what we did was a.、Uh, Like a dozen or so other players in the space, we actually ended up developing our own orchestration layer for orchestration platform for Docker. Like very few people,、uh, there's still a lot of people using it, and we're you know we're trying. We've been try- for the last couple of years, we've been trying as hard as we can to migrate、uh, those folks to Kubernetes, and and that orchestrator was called Cattle, and and a lot of folks in the industry still remembers that fondly. I mean, it just. Something we had to do because otherwise, uh, uh, really, like people were just trying all kinds of stuff. They were, you know, they were trying to orchestrate containers using a、uh, using Chef, using Puppet, like anything, any tool that 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 could be used. So it, we just really needed something. So so that was very hard. And I think also the the other approach we took was we said we're going to support. Like you said, we're going to support anything, and we're going to try to add value on top. Whether it's the user interface, or we had an application catalog, which was sort of—I mean, these days when I mean, people talk about Helm, and it's not even a problem anymore. But back then, it was like a big deal. You know, you can one-click deploy applications, and you know, we <laughs> we figured out authentication, just really like you know. Environment management, like you have these different clusters, and who can access what cluster. So we found a number of avenues that we could add some value and and build a you know build an early business and and got a product out of the door that that got some very early product market fit. But fundamentally, we knew that that vision wasn't. I mean, that was just not a stable state. The the technology space. Especially open source technology tend to be the winner take all. So what what came out of that is when we、uh, developed our 2.0 product,、uh, truly centered around Kubernetes, we basically had to throw away almost all of the 1.x code. So it, it was literally a reset. That's why you know these things almost kill companies, right? So, <laughs> and and then I mean you could imagine if that's the impact on the product. That obviously has a ripple effect on on the customer base, user base. So so it's 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 very, really very significant. You know, I think I think a lot of people don't appreciate how <laughs> how tough it has been for this、uh, for this industry because of confusion around around orchestration. We know some companies that it has really really damaged the the orchestration wars, and it's just it's unfortunate. I mean. You know, there's this the benefit of of the way the technology industry works in, in in the regard of the container orchestration wars is that you have a marketplace of ideas and the ideas play themselves out in the open. But the downside is that there are these casualties. There's this just waste that goes into the lack of central planning. The fact that we have this this anarchy that leads to the to the creation of Of the best solution, like the best thing winning out, is there any way to avoid that anarchy in, in the community and and like you know as a community centralize around 
solutions more quickly. Like you see this with with the Istio stuff. Like I, you know, I've been covering the this the service. You know, I don't know if if you would call it a service mesh war. I've called it that, kind of as a matter of link bait, because I'm I'm a journalist. I'm just trying to link bait people to my service mesh war coverage, but it does feel a bit like a, a war. There's a war between Linkerd and Istio, and probably one of them is going to win, maybe multiple winners, but it feels like the container orchestration wars. And that's maybe a tragedy, maybe a feature. Tell me your, your perspective on the value of wars. I think it's great. You know, it's actually, it will happen. I mean, you, it's, it's unavoidable. And it's a, you know, competition makes everyone better. And what's interesting is a lot of times, you know, the wars may not result in anything of, uh, in retrospect of, of, of substantial value. There's actually, sometimes people lose the big picture. Like, like, for example, I've actually been personally involved in a war myself, actually multiple ones. I mean, in the Java days, they were, there was Java versus Windows and that kind of stuff. And then when I worked on CloudStack and OpenStack, there was CloudStack versus OpenStack. And what really happens in all of these uh, situations was uh, the benefit of, uh, like, I actually kind of, I think both SDO and Linkerd should really thank you for the journalists and the public for describing it as a war because it actually raises dramatically raises the profile and awareness of these technologies. And in the end, what's going to happen is uh, if the product market fit isn't really quite there, then it really doesn't matter. Nobody wins. But if the product market fit is there, then it's really interesting. Then, you know, something like Kubernetes will happen. Then actually the strongest technology and the best run community will actually win. That's really great. You know, it's almost out of necessity to kind of, I think, to, to go through that because what's the alternative? I mean, the alternative would be something that completely develops under the radar. And then all of a sudden, it became a runaway hit so quickly <laughs> that, you know, competition didn't even realize that. I mean, right. it, it happened. It happened a few times. It happened with right. VMware. It happened with AWS. So that's kind of the alternative, right? And and it happened, you could argue, with, you know, some great technologies like, say, Elasticsearch. You know, it was just, it was just developing, developing. Then it just became a leader. So that's kind of the other alternative. But I, I mean, I would think the second alternative generally results in a much more lucrative business because because you know you, you you now you basically have something that ruled the business whereas if you look at how kubernetes played out is because in order to win like kubernetes not only had to be the best technology but it also has to be the best open uh, it has to be the most open. With all that competition, uh, a lot of the uh, profit is also competed away. Like if you if you now look at the Kubernetes services like GKE and EKS and AKS, I think all of them pretty much sell that service either for free or at very very low cost. And that's a very big difference. There's a very big difference, say, from a Kubernetes cloud Kubernetes service or say, a, a cloud database service like RDS. So uh, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, because it's fundamentally such an open piece of technology with open community that's openly competed. So, so that's why, like, w- with us, like, we have a very pragmatic view about this. We probably recognized earlier than most people that, you know, Ranch has been a, certified distro of Kubernetes, but unless the distro is truly, truly uh, differentiated, like K3S, you know, uh, because it's it's the smallest, it's the easiest to manage. Like, otherwise, if you're just, if you just take the upstream Kubernetes code and then say, I'm going to be a Kubernetes company because I've got, you know, 10 certified Kubernetes engineers, I mean, you're not going to, it's not going to be easy for you to make money. So it's not going to be easy to build a viable business if you're if you're just using this industry standard technology that, that you don't even own. So or nobody owns at this point. So it, it really has some interesting implications. But I think it's great, you know. So you just have to be aware 
which situation you're in. Are you more in the AWS, vSphere, Elasticsearch kind of situation, or you're more in a, more in a uh, Kubernetes kind of situation? What kind of situation does service mesh seem like to you? I think it's closer to a Kubernetes kind of situation, clearly. You know, you, at this point, it seems to me that we have some firsthand knowledge about this ourselves. We don't produce, I mean, we're not one of the producers of service mesh technology. There's, there's Linkerd, that's part of CNCF. And, and Istio, that's uh, still, I mean, that's, that's led by Google. But we consume these technologies because we have to kind of support these things for, for our customers. And, and we see that, you know, Linkerd, by being a part of CNCF, it's, it's just a more open community. But on the other hand, Istio is just more feature rich. So, and then you got the power of, you know, the credibility of Google behind it. So I think it's where we're in a, a very interesting situation with, with service mesh. So I guess I'm not sure exactly what you, what you mean by the, it's more like a Kubernetes example. Are you saying that we're waiting to see like the, the there's going to be some third dark horse competitor that's going to satisfy the middle ground between these two technologies? No, no, no. I think in the long run, one of them has to... It, one of those two. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It can't be both, right? There's yeah, no yeah. way. So I said those two situations, one situation is a piece of technologies or a service or something is able to develop pretty much under the radar. Then all of a sudden build such a lead in the industry that nobody is able to catch up anymore. So I use Elasticsearch as, a, as an example, right? And AWS is an example. Or you have another situation where, you know, pretty much early on, people realize there's an opportunity and you have multiple technologies and they, they all have to compete. But in that scenario, these technologies will, because there's competition, they'll actually maturate much faster because there's, there's competition. But in the end, still only one should win. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't blame you for not wanting to place a bet on either one. It's very hard to tell at this point. I mean, it, it, I, I find this this battle to be quite riveting. You know, I've never been much of a sports fan, uh, but um, it's, a, it's such a cool competition because you really do have this, you summarized it quite well, Istio, this very feature-rich, like open-sourced, but kind of closed and like what like where did this thing come from like what are all these partnerships that you're talking about you know versus kind of the dark horse Linkerd that identified the space quite early i think your your analogy there is is like Linkerd is kind of like Elasticsearch where they spotted this space early they placed a big bet on it and they've just doubled down relentlessly yeah let me clarify that i think i think probably you know, Elasticsearch was in a in a in a very uh, interesting uh, situation. It developed over a long period of time where there's no competition at all. So pretty much was able to take over market share before a viable open source competition even appeared. So I think at this point, either Linkerd or Istio, to me, are like Elasticsearch anymore because they're 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 just receiving so much. Uh, attention, right? Such, such uh, at, a, at a such early stage, so so they have to compete. But the benefit is, you know, I think both of these technologies are, are evolving very quickly. They not only have to evolve quickly in terms of technology, they also have to be reasonably open to to stay viable. So so it's it's fascinating. And and for us, we're you know we're more like where Rancher is 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 these are key enabling technologies for our customers, but we don't really need to place a strong bet on either of them. But at this point, it's very clear, though, we're definitely seeing more uh, customer uh, demand for Istio, uh, just, I think, just because it, mostly because it, it just really works it's just more powerful. And so as a result of that, we've just put a lot more focus on Istio. But we're not, you know, when there's nothing against uh, Linkerd. Right. Right. Well, I hope this war doesn't kill your company. <laughs> I don't think it will. <laughs> I think you're okay this time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there, people have learned, people have kind of learned their lessons, you know. Right. The, the, 
the uh, Microsoft just at KubeCon announced a service mesh interface. So I think that that's a great initiative that I think so too. We support it. We, we supported their launch. And uh, uh, we have a project called Real. It's a micro pass. So it, it's kind of designed to package a lot of technologies like like service mesh and K-native, you know, to, to, to oh, okay. running on, you can run on any Kubernetes cluster, create a really easy to use PaaS experience for developers. And, and oh, that's and, great. And that's a, in that kind of scenario, because the developer is not really directly interacting with Istio or Linkerd, like it doesn't really matter to them what we use as long as it works, right? So we would honestly, for for for, I mean, today, real uh, work uh, integrates with Istio because it does everything we need and uh, everything it does everything we want, and it's 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 rock solid. It it works really well. But we wouldn't mind, you know, one day, let's just say, just say, uh, you know, if Linkerd is, let's just say, it's Maybe it's smaller or lighter weight or something. Then that could be an option too. And the great thing about uh, service mesh interface is, uh, it, you know, it, it almost make it make it easy for this thing to become a plugin. The container orchestration wars and the service mesh wars; these are wars that occur at one layer of the stack. But I think at a higher level, there is a a different kind of war, and that war is one that you're fighting to win enterprise deals. So I like to walk around the expo hall at KubeCon, and I walk around the expo hall and I see, okay, there's Rancher, there's Platform 9, there's OpenShift, there's Google. There's all these different companies that have built some kind of platform on top of Kubernetes. And... That is a much less winner-take-all space than which container orchestrator is going to win because every enterprise is going to need one of these things. And if you just think about the fact that, okay, right now we are in the early days of enterprises becoming distributed systems companies. There's going to be a whole lot of opportunity, both now and in the future, for companies such as yourself. And... I'm wondering how that affects your long-term strategic vision. Because I think of it kind of like Android phone manufacturers where, you know, there's, I, I don't know how many companies that have built successful mobile phone businesses off of Android. Probably it's in the hundreds. Maybe, maybe that's too many, but it's a lot, right? Like there's a lot of Android devices out there. The Kubernetes ecosystem kind of feels like that to me, where it's like you don't have to produce all the smartphones in the world to win as an Android manufacturer, and you don't have to capture all of the enterprises in the world to be a successful Kubernetes platform vendor, but you'd like to maximize that capture. So how do you navigate this highly competitive world of Kubernetes platform providers? Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, this is so, the way you characterize it is just so accurate and, and fantastic and, you know, and, and, uh, and clear. So, uh, and I tell you, it's a tough space because, uh, Kubernetes is, is, you know, just, just like building mobile phones is a, is a tough space, right? But it hasn't stopped a lot of people being very successful. And in the end, it's the customer who benefits. So, but I tell you right now, the the IT guys are really facing some very like compare with like as a mobile phone customer I'm basically pretty happy I tell you like maybe the reception is still not where it needs to be but but like everywhere in the world but that kind of stuff is really hard to solve it's orthogonal to Android and and you know and iPhone but generally like these platforms are pretty good whereas if you if you look at enterprise IT you know Earlier, I was saying, where should the enterprise IT go? They, you know, they want to generally want to move to the cloud, but which cloud? What's going to be their new platform if, you know, all these clouds are different? So that's why we fundamentally believe that the IT computing platform of the future will be based on Kubernetes or something like Kubernetes. I mean, it could very well, for now, Kubernetes is really the, the, the obvious choice. So we believe in five years, 10 years, Kubernetes will basically be powering, you know, all the 
a significant enterprise workload. And I think that the industry is moving very quickly toward that. Now, if you kind of take that for granted, then there's a huge amount of challenges these organizations face. You know, I kind of just tell you three. And by the way, different vendors, they again approach it differently, but we choose to address a few challenges that we see. You know, the first challenge is that it is just very hard to actually operate Kubernetes. Like it still requires way too high level of technical expertise, right? So so that's kind of almost like the level one. And and you see all kinds, I mean, Rancher tries to solve it, Platform 9 tries to solve it, OpenShift tries to solve it. There's dozens, I think over maybe over a hundred Kubernetes distro vendors try to solve it. So this is a this is like the first challenge. And and I think this is a hotly contested space and you have to be like truly differentiated. You can't because otherwise, you know, if if the way it's going is if, if people go into the cloud or they go to Google, there's no reason not to use GKE. I mean, why bother paying a vendor for a separate tool that they have to then operate versus just get Kubernetes as a service, right? So it really has to be special. And that's where, you know, Rancher is something that's truly special. We developed uh, really an industry first, uh, this this K3S project. Have you heard about that? I have not. Okay. It is an extremely small, extremely lightweight Kubernetes distro that's designed to work on the edge, everywhere, in branch offices, you know, basically anywhere that the Linux will go, this Kubernetes can go. Like it can run on Raspberry Pi. And we're basically saying, if you're in the cloud, then use cloud-hosted Kubernetes. We don't even think you should be running your own Kubernetes clusters. But if you have any reason, still be managing your own hardware, which is really mainly around the edge. You know, we have a, we have people nowadays, you know, looking to run Kubernetes in like Chick-fil-A. They, they wrote an article about using Rancher to do that last year in their stores. You know, we were running with a, we were working with a, with the second largest wind turbine uh, manufacturer in the world. They're, they're looking to, to, to using Kubernetes to manage to actually run on their their power generation plants which are like middle in the, in the, in, the, in the middle of a desert or the middle of a mountain or you know oil platforms and energy uh, use cases so there's still like I'm saying this problem is not solved and there there are tons and tons of uh, use cases that we're just seeing today that people literally want to take kubernetes everywhere like kubernetes we really believe is going to be just as ubiquitous as, as Linux, and you may not even know that Linux is what's, you know, powering your phone or powering your TV, but it's there, right? So Kubernetes will be something very similar to that. And there's just tons of an opportunity. So we, we developed K3S. It really took the industry by storm. It's the fastest growing open source project in the history of Rancher. I think we hit over uh, 7,000 uh, GitHub stars just in a matter of weeks after the project is launched. So it, it just showing no signs of, uh, of, of slowing down. So, so this is very truly exciting. Then the, the second challenge we see is, as you know, Kubernetes is uh, was originally you know came from Google Borg, and so they wrote a paper about it. They also even better in this case, they actually produce a, produce a <laughs> open source implementation of, of some of the Borg concepts. And the whole idea was the uh, original idea was like it's a very big resource pool. So you know Google as a whole has one Borg. You know all their resources around the world is pulled together. So really, if you kind of apply that logic. You know, you should just have one Kubernetes cluster. And like every organization maybe should just have one Kubernetes cluster. But in reality, we're not really seeing that because nowadays it's so easy to get Kubernetes clusters in the cloud. It's so easy to, it's, you know, we were talking about running Kubernetes clusters on the edge, on Raspberry Pi. It's also so e- becoming easier and easier to set up your own Kubernetes cluster. So we're basically seeing these clusters popping up in an organization everywhere. And, and they need a platform that can provide, you know, IT needs control, needs visibility, needs to apply security policy needs to maintain consistency. So that's what Rancher Server does. So we have a, a product called Rancher Server, which is also open source. All our products are open source. And that 
allows you to uh, manage. It's, it's really the true value is multi-cluster management, which also implies hybrid cloud, multi-cloud management. But the idea is it is the rancher for the cattle that is Kubernetes. You know, so I hope that makes sense. You, you, you have a rancher server there that manages all your resources, deploys all your apps through across wherever these Kubernetes cluster are. So that is actually our best-selling product now. That is that is like 90 plus percent of our business is just selling Rancher. So that's a big part of our business. Then the third one we're also seeing is uh, uh, saying Kubernetes is getting adopted everywhere. But Kubernetes was historically like the designed for really for DevOps teams, even in that case for fairly advanced DevOps teams. You know, it came out of Google. It had some advanced concepts. You know, it, the, the YAML files are not, not necessarily the easiest thing to compose. And there's a bit of a challenge for a lot of developers who are, who are just more focused on building applications to actually directly consume Kubernetes. So that's why we're building uh, this micro-pass called Real, as in Rio de Janeiro, Real. That allows us to package together technologies like Knative, like Istio, like Linkerd, and it can run on, it's micro-pass, it's not necessarily big pass. So so like as a developer, I can, I can have K3S running on my laptop, and then I just run Real, on top of that, then I can deploy my applications very easily without even understanding anything about Kubernetes or Istio. But I know exactly how my app is going to be deployed and upgraded and tested. Then I, you know, after I figured out how this everything works, I fix my code and make sure it still works. Then I check my stuff in, right? Then it goes through CICD, which then the whole thing would deploy in exactly the same environment in CICD. Then finally, it'll get at some point promoted into production as part of that process. So, so that is really cool. So you can kind of see like Rancher where we're really just focusing on how to leverage uh, this Kubernetes technology, how to take advantage of this uh, Kubernetes everywhere vision that we 100% believe it's going to happen and how to really build these tools that make our customers successful. Indeed. I want to talk a bit about your background and the dynamics between U.S. and China engineering as we wrap up. You got your undergraduate degree in China. You got your PhD in computer science from Yale. I've become fascinated with Chinese engineering because I went to KubeCon China. I read Kai-Fu Lee's. Did you read Kai-Fu Lee's book? Oh, I've heard about it. I think I know what it is about. I haven't read it. Yeah. Well, I, it, that, that book made me curious because I, I don't know how like completely accurate it was. But, you know, he talks about this 996 work style, which is like really appealing to me just because I, I like technologists who work really, really hard. I admire them. And, I, you know, another data point that I found interesting was the, you probably saw the Zoom IPO, and, and I think in the Zoom video conferencing software, I think it was built mostly by Chinese engineers, and, and it was led by a Chinese immigrant entrepreneur. So it's just a really interesting success story. How do the engineering cultures, the software engineering cultures of the U.S. and China differ from one another? You know, unfortunately, like uh, there's not a, but we don't have a huge engineering presence in China. There are a small number of engineers in China who we originally hired to mainly serve the customers in China. And some of them have been making contributions to the product as well. So I have a little bit of visibility, not probably not as much as a, as a company like Zoom would have. But I just think I have a huge amount of uh, respect for hardworking Chinese uh, people generally are. I mean, I think the, the way we grew up, all of us basically felt that being able to work and earn money, I mean, you don't even really have to have, be, have any prospect of being successful, but just being able to work and then either directly earning money with your time or just your earning experience, you're, you're making yourself better. That is sort of a almost motivation 
alone, that benefit is sufficient to just work. You know, I think I'm not sure even 996 accurately captures the work style of Chinese. I mean, I, you know, at least when I was remembered and what I've observed and, you know, how we, I work, it's, you almost like spend every waking hour working. You know, so or maybe even sometimes in your dreams. So it's literally like that, and uh, and that is, I think, what contributed to the more than anything else contributed to the rapid development of the economy in China across the board. But that said, you know, I certainly would have had the opportunity. I mean, if I really wanted to do it, I could have built a engineering team in China and then base all of our development in China. I didn't do it. Not because I did not like China, because at the end of the day, U.S. is all things concerned, uh, is still far more competitive, far more efficient in doing what we do. You know, with all that 996 and everything, doing everything for me, like we're, we're doing literally like 90 eight percent of the work in the US. Okay. So that is still like I'm doing it because because you know we're a startup, we're cap we're, we're very capital constrained, as you can imagine, right? Like all startups, you know. So and it's we, fun. Yeah. We always have to do it, you know, in the most economic way. But there's still nothing that actually beats there's still something that like at least in doing what we do, that it's it's very hard to do in China because it is highly creative work. It, yeah. it requires a lot of passion. I don't expect people to stay in office 12 hours a day. That is honestly not good. I mean, I don't expect people to even do that in China. But what I've seen is, you know, some of the best work I think happens even for me or for you or for a lot of engineers, you know, when they're not, when they're at home, not even right. at work. And then some, some great idea will come to them. Right. That's what's misunderstood about the 996 thing. So I'm not sure, like, like I think you got to take this Chinese work ethic as more of a just work ethic than anything else. I actually think the U.S. system, like at Rancho, we pride, part of our culture is being extremely accommodating to employees' needs, you know, really, like, I think we have the highest, I think it's amazing, you know, our Silicon Valley office, we actually have more female engineers than male engineers. And then I think one of the reasons we can accomplish that is because, you know, we're so accommodating to people's needs. I mean, a lot of them are working moms, you know, take, have, have multiple children. And they're, I mean, literally, they're beating, far beating the, the, the productivity of the 20 engineers that work 24-7 in China. And, uh, I'm sure. and it's amazing. And it's not really just because they're they're more capable. There's there's just something about the creativity, the motivation, yeah. you know, the environment. It's a very interesting situation. Shang, there's so much we could have covered that we didn't get into. Are you going to be at KubeCon San Diego? Yes. All right. Well, maybe we can do uh, an actual in-person show there. Absolutely. Okay, Shang. Great talking to you. Have a wonderful weekend. And thanks for coming on the show. Been great talking to you. It was awesome talking to you as well. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. Wow.